Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. I'm reading from John 7, verses 40 to 52. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law... There was a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their number, asked, Does their law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. That's great. Thank you so much, Sarah, for doing the Bible reading. It's great to have you both back after a trip to the Philippines. It's lovely to be here as well myself, having been away a little bit, had an unexpected visit to a hospital um, with kidney stones um, just over a week ago, apparently very small, and I was making a big fuss about nothing, although they say kidney stones is the closest thing to giving birth for a man to go through an experience, so uh, you might have some sympathy in me that. I obviously have nothing to compare that with, um, but I, I tend to think that it's a lot less painful than, uh, than giving birth personally. Uh, but it's great to be here. I'm back as well from um, an amazing time in Korea. I'll probably hint a little bit more about that. I can only share parts of that um, with you for security safety reasons, but I'll, I'll try and get that out over the next coming weeks uh, ahead. But we're in week 16 of a deep dive in John's Gospel. Um, this amazing first century biography written about Jesus by uh, the Apostle John. So to set the scene for this morning's passage, I want to state the obvious, and that is that we live today in a divided world. We've been divided over many things. Divided over Brexit. And I thought today it'd be really interesting just to do a little poll to see how divided this church was over that. So if you'd like to raise your hand, if you voted for... I'm not going there. (laughs) Some of you are a little uneasy, but it just illustrates the point. We're divided over Brexit. We're divided over politics. We're divided over the environment. We're divided over the economy. We're divided over who should be our next prime minister. We are divided in things in church life as well. We're divided about what color the chairs should be. We get divided over about the worship style, what it should be. We get divided over how the preacher should preach and what his style should be. We get divided like that. A lot of division. And I think the issue is that none of us want to be on the wrong side of history. The wrong side of the argument. We want to be able to rejoice that we stood for righteousness. We were on the right side, even though that was extremely 
unpopular. And that is what today's teaching is all about. How to make sure that you are on the ultimate right side, not the ultimate wrong side. How to make sure as well that you don't end up in this dangerous place of fence-sitting, of non-commitment, where you're on neither side, or that you are kind of committed to Christianity and to, to Jesus, but to be honest, no one really knows what side you're actually on because of the way that you live. Sorry if that offends you. This is all about having Jesus as our Lord, to commit to his side and to live accordingly. So I've got five discipleship coaching questions for you today, which are going to come throughout this message. And they're really for you to use, to take away in your quiet times, in your small groups, in your discussions, to one another, each other with, so that you can keep building sort of the ripple effects of what gets shared on a Sunday, so you can talk to each other about it, ask these questions to each other. But before we get into that, first let's see whether you can complete this sentence. No one and nothing has been more hated, I should say, and loved than blank. No one and nothing has been more loved and hated than... Some people say Marmite. Some people would finish that sentence, Boris Johnson. No one has been more loved and hated than Boris Johnson. But the ultimate answer to that question is no one has been more loved and hated than Jesus, than Jesus. Jesus is the most divisive and the most unifying being in existence. Millions of people throughout history have followed him, have been absolutely committed to him. And millions of people have sought to destroy him and his followers throughout history and are still doing that to this very day. I know I've been with some of them recently, hearing stories of people who've defected from North Korea, which, by the way, is the second most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian today, where if you have children, you are fearful of telling your children about Jesus, let alone that they might even see that you own a Bible, because if your children tell their school teachers that you are Christians, you are all off to a prison camp together, which are horrendous. This is real. Jesus divides, but he also unites and he, he unifies. Why is Jesus so divisive? Well, it's because he's not just obviously a food product or a political leader. He is the one who says that he shapes time and history and reality and all meaning finds its origin in him. So he's extremely divisive depending on what you think about him. Verse 43 in our passage says that the people were divided because of Jesus. Jesus was what was dividing the people. Some thought he was a prophet. Some thought he was a messiah. The one who's going to come and overthrow the Romans. Others, they just wanted to come and seize and arrest him. How had they been so confused and, and misunderstood the heart of Jesus, the nature, who the person of Jesus Christ was, especially as we read in verse 40 that they had heard 
Jesus' words. They'd heard what he had to say, but they hadn't really heard him. They weren't really listening. They hadn't really understood. Yet his words were amazing. The soldiers, verse 46, it says, who had been sent to go and seize Jesus and arrest him by the Jewish authorities, they come back and they say, no one's ever spoken the way this man spoke. We don't feel we can arrest him. His words are amazing. And can you just think about what it would have been like to hear Jesus in the flesh speaking the content, turn the other cheek, love your enemies. And he modeled that, the authority with which he spoke. Truly, truly, I say to you, he's not appealing to some other authority. He is the authority that he's speaking by extraordinary, that, that scares these officers to say, we dare not put a hand on him. They'd heard these words, but they hadn't really take them to heart. They hadn't really understood them. And the question is, are we also like that when it comes to the words of God? I think there are three reasons why we sometimes don't listen. Before I get into that, I think there might be some folks here online or in person who may have already reached the point in this message sort of saying, I don't feel that this week's sermon is relevant to me. (laughs) And you're kind of switching off or you feel like maybe it's going to be good for that person. And it's just Why are we in John's gospel anyway? Isn't this like baby food for Christians? Why don't we get into the tougher stuff like Daniel and Revelation and, you know, all that kind of thing? Hold on, hold on a moment. Um, There's a lot of repetition in the scriptures and there's a reason for that because we just, we just keep forgetting and not living by the truth. So we have to keep being told again and again and again, especially the gospel, which is why we're in this particular gospel. So the first of these three ways that we can often hear the words but not really hear the words of Jesus is because we get preoccupied. Let me illustrate this to you. Um, It happens more often than I would like in, in our marriage that there are moments when I have a conversation with Holly and I'm like, she'll say, do you remember that we're going to go and do this and this today or tomorrow? And I'll be like, uh, no, I, I didn't think we agreed to do that. When, when, when did we agree to do that? That doesn't seem right. Why would I say yes to that? And then she'll remind me of a conversation that we would have had some time ago uh, and where I will have been like totally preoccupied with something but presenting as if I was actually present and listening um, and just in my own world and thought life and worrying about this or that or the other but, but in the conversation and just automatically say yes. This is a very concerning thing that I do. Please don't take advantage of me <laughs> in doing that now that you know this, this vulnerability. It really annoys my wife. So, so do pray for her. It's a good way of growing in grace. But I have to learn in this. I need to be present. I need to be present. I need to give my wife my full, undivided attention. It's my wife talking to me. How much more so with God? Right? Sometimes I think we approach God how I've occasionally been watching my K-dramas. These are Korean dramas I've really got into recently, sort of cultural preparation for the trip that I was going on. Highly recommended, by the way. They are fantastic. But you can't watch a K-drama whilst looking at your phone trying to buy secondhand clothes from the Vinted app 
Do you know why? Because K-dramas are subtitled. And the moment that you look away, you lose, obviously, what's going on in the drama. And I think they're pitched at a slightly more intelligent audience. Um, I won't make any more comments about that. But if you look away for too long, you're going to lose the storyline. Um, you just can't do that. Are we doing that with God? In the way that we read the Bible, in the way that we meet with him and have our quiet times and our devotions and even be at church. We get preoccupied. Maybe, dare I say, you've already begun to think about what you're having for lunch and what's happening for the rest of the day whilst I've been talking and all that kind of stuff is in your mind. So here's my first discipleship coaching question. Here's what it is. Do you need to make space or more space in your life to give God your full, undivided attention? It's really as simple as that. I could finish the message, pack up, go home. That is, this is just isn't, the Christian life is not that complicated, right? We make it so hard and we want to read the commentaries and do it, but, but if we're not doing this, you're not really a Christian. You're making time to sit with him, be with him, fellowship with him, enjoy him, know him, hear his word. Read the scriptures, pray, be in church, be with other believers. Be obedient to what he says. It's sad, isn't it, that the, the people that you spend the most time with, you become most like. For good or for bad. And so we want to spend our time, the majority of our time, with Jesus. Right? With God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're transformed by him. One of my favorite verses, if we're allowed them in the scriptures, is Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And it's a description of others about the disciples, Jesus' closest disciples. And it says that they are so courageous and so bold, despite that they were uneducated fishermen. How do they explain that? And it says it's because they've been with Jesus. Did you get that? Other people are saying, there's something different about these people. They're so courageous and they're so bold. It doesn't make sense. How is that possible? And they looked and they said, it's because they've been with Jesus. Isn't that what we want people to say of us? We're so radically, counterculturally different. And the only explanation is because we've been with Jesus. So if we're fearful, if we're timid, if we're anxious, the answer may actually be that we've just not spent enough time with Jesus lately. And he's inviting you. He wouldn't condemn you. He won't say, oh, you, you know, you're rubbish because you have No, he just says, come. Come, let's start over. I miss you. Come fellowship with me. The second area is that we can be prejudiced. And because we can be prejudiced, we sometimes don't hear what God is saying or what others are saying. And we can be prejudiced in this world about different things from the way people look, their gender, and so forth, all sorts of things. And we can be prejudiced towards God because of our family of origin stories about fatherhood, perhaps, and how we attribute that to God the Father. Because of what culture around us is saying, that can filter into how we then view and look upon, upon God. So we can become prejudiced and not really hear or miss here what God is actually saying or how God describes himself to be. To illustrate how we can be prejudiced and so easily misunderstand people, let me share with you an amazing story from our brilliant worship leader, Mike Tan. A few weeks ago, he was driving his daughter to the supermarket, 
And as he turned off into the supermarket, um, basically a pedestrian sort of attempted to die <laughs> and ran out in front of him, this sort of crazy kind of movement. So Mike understandably beeps the horn to try and protect the pedestrian. You know, that, that kind of moment that happens. But the car coming the other direction thinks that Mike is beeping at them. Mike doesn't necessarily realize that because by this point he's sort of driven off, he's avoided the pedestrian, thank the Lord, um, and he's gone and found a space to park in. But then he discovers that the car that beat back at him has then come all the way over towards him. The driver has wound down the window and then shouts out the window at Mike, I wish you would drop dead. <laughs> it's like Mike graciously in that moment managed to shout back at her, The Lord bless you, (laughs) because he's a very holy man, clearly. Um, She totally misunderstood Mike's heart, his intentions. Was she prejudiced? Was it just male drivers are aggressive and nasty, and so they meant the worst towards me? Who knows? But we all know that we can be prejudiced, and we can misjudge, and we can misunderstand others. So my second discipleship question is, we need to do better at giving other believers, and especially God, especially God, the benefit of the doubt. Are you? Are you? Our unity is at stake at two levels. Our unity in our understanding of Christ and our unity in our love for one another. The Jewish leaders had preconceived ideas about the Messiah. These were based on scripture, but also prejudice. They understood from scripture that the Messiah should be uh, based out of Bethlehem. But they were also prejudiced. How could anything good come from Galilee? Right, this northern part of of, of, of Israel, you know, where people are less intelligent, where they speak funny, they've not gone, you know, got degrees or qualifications, and they're just country bumpkins. How can anything good, how can any serious prophet come out of there? Surely it's Jerusalem, surely it's the south, right? Don't we judge people that way so often by the way that they speak? To This prediction comes from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The prediction that the Messiah would indeed be born in Bethlehem, but because he needed to be born in Bethlehem, he doesn't need to be, he to be raised and live his entire life in Bethlehem. Could, that could be done in Galilee, and the scripture could kill, still be fulfilled. And the extraordinary ways that God brought about the fulfillment of this scripture by organizing a Roman census so that Jesus has to come in Mary's womb, Mary and Joseph traveling down to Jerusalem, sorry, to Bethlehem together. So that that prophetic prediction written around about 600 plus years before Jesus was even born would be fulfilled. Which testifies really to the reliability of scripture because you, you cannot decide where you get born, by the way. <laughs> but it was decided where Jesus would be born. And this leads me to the third issue. They were proud. And because they were proud, they couldn't really hear Jesus' words. They presumed everybody else was wrong and that they were right. 
They were right in their interpretation of Scripture. They were right that this disqualified Jesus because he was connected with Galilee, not Bethlehem. I so often think this is a danger for us. It's a danger for me too. I can be proud in my interpretation of Scripture. Proud in my understandings. Thinking I know better than the preacher. Than the leader. Than my Christian friends who are seeking to hold me accountable. But so often we make mistakes. Many mistakes that are common today would be thinking certain parts of Scripture are in Scripture when they're actually not. Like money is the root of all evil. It's not in the Bible. Sin, rebellion against God is the root of all evil. Money is a cause of all kinds of evil. Or cleanliness is next to godliness. That also is not in the Bible. Or God helps those who help themselves. Again, not in the Bible. In fact, so not in the Bible, that might be a heresy. Because we don't help ourselves to salvation. We are helpless, dead in our sins, without hope. Stuck in the darkest pit possible that we cannot climb out of ourselves. And God in his grace comes in and he lifts us up with him to freedom. That is the gospel. That is how we're saved. Just to illustrate this, I had an amazing experience of grace this week. I was privileged to be asked to preach at a prayer gathering in Korea for the reunification of um, North and South Korea. Um, I was largely asked, I believe, because I'm the pastor of this church, and this church has a history uh, that kind of has some cachet and credibility but isn't necessarily, I've not earned that. I've never, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like that's not, that's not my cash in the bank, but that, that is respected around the world. So they'd ask me in a team of people where I'm the baby in the team. There's the leaders of a, you know, a national movement, New Wine, like thousands of churches, another movement, and they, they asked me to preach. I'm the least qualified person in this mission team that's going to preach this word, although I did feel that God had given me a word remarkably to share. What I had no idea about was that everyone in our team was going to be given a peace medal made out of barbed wire from the DMZ zone and shells from the 1950s Korean War. We received it alongside Koreans in their, I would guess, 70s, 80s and 90s who have prayed tirelessly every day for the reunification of their nation, who have served in ways and risked their lives in ways that defy belief. And here I am going up to go and receive the medal, the least qualified person, the least capable, the least able, it feels like, a medal of peace. I got it all and I felt I'd accomplished nothing. It was grace. Would I want to give it back? No way. <laughs> now I've got it, like this is precious and it is like fire in my veins to pray. 
to be obedient to this commission and call, how much more with the gospel? We get everything in advance. The moment we believe, every spiritual blessing in Christ, it's more than just a medal around your neck. This is glorious. You don't want to give it back. No way. You've got it all. Now we want to go and live in right response to what we've received. That is, that is the gospel. It is not help yourself. God helps those who help themselves. Not at all. The Jewish leaders were so proud they didn't do their research. They didn't get their facts right. They didn't even want to know that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem and he actually really had fulfilled this scripture. They, they, didn't, they didn't care about that. They gave in to their prejudice. The one mention of Galilee was enough to cover ev- over, over everything. They weren't really interested anymore. And it's so easy to misunderstand people, isn't it? I can't tell you how many times I've been misunderstood. I'm sure you have too. It's very painful to be misunderstood. Sometimes I've mentioned up here that I'm an introvert. And I really am an introvert, honestly. If I do MBTI, Myers-Briggs tests, I come out as an INFJ. (laughs) But because I'm an introvert, people think like, oh, he's going to be really quiet, really shy, really reserved. He's probably not going to say much in a crowd. And that's one type of being an introvert, but I'm an INFJ, which is a creative, passionate, expressive, external processing introvert. So like, this is normal for me, right? I've got energy and passion, and I'm excited for the gospel, and I, I just, can you let me be me? Like, can you let me be me, or do you want me to be in a box and say, no, 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 you've got to be an introvert. If you, you're not allowed to move, really, Howard, from either side of the lectern, we like it like that, and you must preach every single verse exactly, every word, word by word. That, that's, that's just, I can't do that. It's not how the Lord has made me. But can you, let, can you let me be me? More importantly, can you let Jesus be Jesus? Or do you need him to... Be what you want him to be. Be who you decide and define him to be. People have been doing that for centuries. A particular example would be the 4th century, where a church leader called Arius decided that he didn't like the idea of the Trinity, that God was three and one. That just seems illogical, right? So Jesus had to be a created being. That's what the Council of Nicaea was about, by the way, the great debate about is Jesus fully God and fully man together? Is he of the same substance as the Father? Or was he at some point created, begotten? No, he was begotten in his humanity. He was always eternally God. But we didn't like that idea. It's too hard to get our head around. We just much prefer him to be a created being, that he came into existence at some point and was powerful and influential. Very similar to the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way. And you're like, well, what does it really matter? Does it make a difference? It makes a lot of difference. (laughs) If Jesus isn't eternally the Son, God isn't eternally the Father. And God hasn't been in plurality in Trinity for eternity past. Therefore, he has been alone, isolated, turned in on himself with no one to love. Therefore, God, by definition, in his essence, is not love. Because he had no one and nothing to love in eternity past. And he has no fatherly fellowship to share because he is not eternally a father. 
And Jesus has no experience of that to truly pass on to him, on to us because he was begotten. You see how it starts to unravel. If you say, I'll take this bit of Jesus, but not that bit of Jesus, you really don't get Jesus at all. Now let's think about it this way. Imagine that I am coming to your home. You've invited me around for dinner. You've prepared a wonderful spread. Right now, I think kimchi should be on the menu, (laughs) having been to Korea. Um, And you come to the door and you say, Ah, welcome, Howard. Howard, you are welcome to come in. But Mr. Satterthwaite, you've got to stay outside. Or, Howard, you're welcome to come in, but Pastor Howard, you've got to stay outside. We don't want the pastor. We We just want the sort of... The sort of friendly you that's not really spiritual. <laughs> that's so offensive, right? I'm going to be so annoyed by that. I'm like, I don't want to. Why, why would I want to spend time with you? You don't want to welcome me as I am. Like, you only want a bit of me. The danger is that we do that to Jesus, and Jesus comes and he knocks at this church on the door of your heart. And you might open the door to him and say, Jesus, I like you. I love the benefits of the kingdom. Please can I have those. But you as king, could you stay outside? I'm not sure I want that part of you. It's Jesus, please come in, be my savior. But Lord, no, the the Lord part, could, could you keep that part outside? The part where I have to be totally obedient to you. I'm not sure I want that. Jesus, you're welcome. I love the way of comfort. But the way of the cross, I don't want to open the door to that. But as you know, it's an all or nothing deal when it comes to Jesus. It's all or nothing. Why is this so important? Because if you don't open the door fully to Jesus, you'll be on the wrong side of history for eternity. You'll be a Christian. Well, you won't. You'll be a, a, a sort of Christian where Jesus is within your circle, as so beautifully put earlier, but he's not sat on the throne of your life. But Jesus gave his all for you. He gave everything. Blood, sweat, tears, to his very dying breath in agony on a cross to purchase you, to demonstrate his love for you. He suffered and died to pay your sin. He rose from the grave to give you new life and power to live with victory over sin. And he says, take up your cross and follow me. Meaning, stop living for yourself. Stop living for those selfish urges and sinful desires. And live for something far more glorious, something greater, something eternal, something beautiful. Something that's really worth giving your life to. Something that's bigger than you. Have you done that? Are you doing that? I'm praying that you have. I'm praying that you will. 
My heart as a pastor of this church is for you. To see you grow. See you break through. See you be all you can be. But this question is so fundamental. The third discipleship question is Jesus your Lord. When push comes to, sh to shove, do you obey him or do you obey your feelings? The Jewish leaders were an example in this passage of religion gone bad. The worst sort of mutated expression of Christianity, uh, of the sort of terrors and evils of secularism as well. And we must be alert that we don't become infected by that in any way. In fact, that we choose, not just that we choose Christ, that we choose away from anything to do with that. Let me give you three ways that it manifests here. Firstly, it condemns without fair reason. The first response to the officers to come back is not to listen. Why didn't you do it? You failed, they say. You failed. Why didn't you arrest Jesus? You haven't done your job. What's wrong with you? They don't want to listen to their reasons. And then they put a curse on the whole crowd. They're all cursed, they say, all tarred with the same brush. No, no distinction. Just everyone is the same. It's often the way that religion works. And then Nicodemus comes, and he comes with a, a pretty reasonable question. But religion doesn't, it's not interested in, in reasonable conversation and discussion and, and things like that. No, no, no. Nicodemus wanted them to follow the law, and the law was about fairness and a fair trial. And they dismiss him and say, no, 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 nonsense. We're right, you're wrong. Go look in the scriptures, and you'll see that we're right and you're wrong. And then... They unreasonably accuse Nicodemus because he dared to raise the question, you must be one of them then. There's a threat there. And if you're one of them, we're after you too. And you're in trouble because we're going to come and arrest you as well. You better shut up. Stay silent or else. Control. Control. Religion is ultimately controlling. They want to be in control just as we want to be in control. We battle to be in control of our own lives, to maintain our positions, our reputations, our situations, our lifestyles. We can do it with anorexia. We can do it with self-harm. We can do it with manipulation. We can do it by managing our own personal perception, all expressions and desires to be in control. And the way out of that is to surrender. It is to die. Spiritually die to prejudice, to preconceived wrong ideas, and surrender to God, to open our minds up. You know, like a parachute. If you don't open it, <laughs> it doesn't work. To stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment about Jesus. That leads to the fourth discipleship question. Which side of the divide are you really on? Are you part of the world of religion? Are you in the kingdom of Christ? If we receive Jesus, we get to rejoice with him. 
We get to taste of his sweet love, his gentle mercy, his tender embrace. And we get to enjoy eternity with him. If you reject Jesus, he will honor your decision. And you will spend eternity when you die without him. Where there is no light, no hope, no goodness, no beauty, no truth. Theologically, we call that place hell. A lot is at stake. A lot rides on how you really answer that question. And you need to be certain where you stand. And you can be certain. That's why Christ came, that you would know. And that you would have an assurance. That if I was to die today, I've got a confidence. I know where I'm going. And I know whose I am. And I'm safe. What can man do to me? Because I'm his and he loves me. And nothing can separate me from his love. Oh, my heart is that you would know that. The only way that you can know that is to confess Jesus as Lord of your life and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead. And the scripture says, then you will be saved. For someone here today, that might be exactly what you need to do. You've never done it. And the Lord is saying, and he's inviting you, come, trust me. And join a great adventure with me. Because the truth is you're not in control. None of us are in control. And when you try and be in control, it's exhausting. You'll burn out. It's wearing. It's frustrating. It causes you conflict with loads of other people. It's just not a happy play, place or way to live. You don't need a fight to be in control if you're a Christian. You can just rest in the sovereignty of God's goodness and grace. And verse 44, as we begin to draw to a close, is all about this. Verse 44 says that they wanted to seize Jesus, but no one could lay a hand on him. No one could touch him. The time for his arrest had not come. Therefore, they could not do what they wanted to do because it wasn't in God's sovereign plan for them to do that. My former mentor in the faith, the former preacher here, he used to say, you are immortal until God's work is done in your life. I am immortal until God's work is done in my life. Nothing can be done to me. Until I have fulfilled the purposes for which he called me to achieve. And the same is true for everyone. God is in control. He is sovereign. He is good. This is the pillow upon which we should rest our heads every night as we sleep in bed. That's what the 19th century preacher Spurgeon used to say. You struggle with anxiety, study the sovereignty of God and sleep confidently. He's in control. This is what history teaches. This is what the scriptures teach. Acts chapter 4. It's really clear. The death of God itself. It looked terrible. The big powerful Romans, Pontius Pilate, teaming up with Herod and all the Jews, coming together to kill Christ. And it says what? They did exactly what God had prepared beforehand that they should do. God was 100% in control. Even at the darkest moment in history. It looked like defeat, despair, and death as Christ is in agony in the cross, but he was accomplishing victory, joy, salvation, hope. In the very moment, it didn't look like it. See, it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you see going on around you. 
God is sovereign. And he's working for great good. Even in the most trying and troubling of circumstances. Let me tell you the testimony of one North Korean woman. She was put into a prison camp for her faith. Again, I'll just say that these prison camps, they're like hell on earth. They are horrific. But in that place of horror and difficulty, the Lord used her to lead five people to salvation in Christ. Isn't that extraordinary? She was more fruitful in prison than out of prison. And then the Lord opened the door for her to escape, come to safety, to tell the world her story. She'd describe herself as just a plain, ordinary Christian. But because of the power of Christ in her, she was able to testify. So here's my question, my final question. Do you need to surrender control back to God again? And is there a particular area where that might be true of you? Maybe it's relationships, perhaps it's money, perhaps it's career. I wonder if it's children and the possibility of having children or the children that you currently have or children who've fallen away in their faith, they're backslidden. And you've never quite been able to really give them to the Lord. I was privileged to hear an extraordinary sermon from a Presbyterian megachurch pastor in South Korea. The church that gets this has 120,000 people <laughs> coming through its doors every week. I think the church itself is bigger than the Westfield Center, just to give you some idea of scale. Their entire auditorium, which holds maybe 20,000 people, was underground, um, and they had two skyscrapers above it. It's quite amazing. Anyway, his sermon was particularly provocative. And he asked the question, what was Jacob's high point in his discipleship? If you know the biblical story, there are kind of moments like, was it when he had that dream of the ladder ascending to, to heaven? Was it when he wrestled with God? Was it when he kind of reconciled with his brother? And this pastor said no. It comes in Genesis chapter 43, verse 14. It was the moment where he was willing to surrender Benjamin back. The favorite child, the replacement to Joseph. Having lost Joseph, presuming him dead, now the brothers have come back to say, we must go down to get grain. And the only way they'll do that is if Benjamin will go. And so he says, God of mercy, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. If I lose, I lose. But because I have you, it will be okay. And he's faithful and he's obedient. In that moment, he hands back this child that he's held onto. And that is the high point of his discipleship and his willingness to be totally committed to serve God and not seek to be in control himself. See, God is concerned for your heart. He wants your total and complete trust. He wants you to be on the right side of history. 
And he invites you to fully commit and surrender to him again today. He gave his all for you. Will you give his all? Will you give your all for him? The best answer to a divided world is a united church. And the key to that unity is our understanding of Jesus and our loving of Jesus as we love each other. Being all in for him. A few months ago now, we set some goals as a church. These were to inspire us towards unity, togetherness, to give us something to, to pray for, to aim at, believe for, strive for, encourage one another towards. They're about unity, not so much about numbers, because we trust God for the fruitfulness. Our part is the faithfulness. Ultimately, we're the, giving the input, but we trust God that he's the one who's going to make it grow. He does the stuff with what we kind of pour in, but we want to press in with faith to believe God for more, Right? We've got a vision in this church for hundreds of lives to be transformed and tens of congregations started. But it's really big, so we need just to know a little step on the way to help us get there. Say, we've got faith for this. Can we pull this together? Can we step out in faith to do that together? Can we surrender our lives for this cause amongst us that this might be a great mission that we could achieve and accomplish together for his glory as we're faithful, faithful in stepping out in all the different ways that he calls us to. And in that process, he's refining us and strengthening us and growing us as disciples as we are being kind of pressured to work together on mission and unity. And iron sharpening iron in that process. That's our core. 222 adults in person. 44 children in person. 15 new members. 15 baptisms. It's not about the numbers so much Live or die by the numbers. The goal is that we move completely from a cruise liner survival post-COVID mentality to being a battleship. Where we're serious. There's a mission. There's a, there's a war on. Lives are at stake. People in poverty, yes, but people eternally who will end up in hell. Unless we pull together in unity and say, we're here for you, God, for such a time as this to share the gospel. To see hundreds of lives transformed and tens of congregations started. But it's not just about us. We're part of a bigger family that is about thousands of lives transformed and hundreds of churches started in tens of nations around the world. This is commission. This is part of an even bigger family, which is the world's global church. But we want to play our part, right? We don't want to let all of the North Koreans get all the glory. <laughs> We're called, church, to a mission. But it begins with surrender. It begins with a sense of unity. We're all saved by Christ. We're called by him. But he asks us that he wouldn't just be the savior. He would be our Lord, our master. And we would go wherever he goes. We would do whatever he asked. We would be faithful no matter what. Empowered by his love. Secure in his love. To live as Christ. To die as gain. What can man do for me? Let us pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this wonderful church. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for their love for you. I thank you for all the ways you've helped us, Lord, persevere when we felt 
weary in doing good, Lord, but we ask you to come today by your Spirit and call us to a greater surrender that will invite your Holy Spirit to come down, that will strengthen and empower and encourage us to go again for you. Lord, we want to give you fully our hearts. Forgive us for where we've held back in fear and anxiety. Lord, where we want to be in control to try and fix things like Abraham and Sarah, where we have not waited for your promise to be fulfilled, but we've tried to make it happen in our own terms. Lord, we don't want that. We want your will. Lord, our heart today is, Lord, to be able to say, not my will be done, but your will be done. Lord, our heart today is to put the interests of others above our own, because that is the way of the cross. Lord, our heart today is to be shaped by the cross. Lord, that you would sit enthroned on our hearts, that you would be the king. And whatever you call us to do, wherever you call us to go, we will say, here I am, send me. Lord, we want to be willing. We want to be united. So Lord, take away today our preoccupation with wrong things that distract us from spending time with you. Put in us a desire to make room, to give you our full undivided attention. And Lord, take away our prejudice. Forgive us for it towards you, the wrong thinking and ideas we have about you, the way we put you in a box. Forgive us for doing that to our brothers and sisters in Christ, even in this room, for misjudging them. Teach us, help us to give them the benefit of the doubt. Take away our pride. Humble us today, Lord. We want to hear your voice. We want to be part of your church. We want to see lives transformed for your glory. We want to give a fitting response to your sacrifice, Lord. Help us to surrender right now in this moment. To give you everything. All that we have. Hold nothing back. And Lord, may it invite your spirit, your presence, as we do that in unity, that you would command the blessing. Pour out your spirit now. We just say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Soften all of our hearts so we can truly surrender to you. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.